welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, conditions that describe the United States for the past 600 years for people of color. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? My name is Nicola Torbett, and I'm based in Oakland, California. And I'm Vahisha Hassan, based in Memphis, Tennessee. This is the sixth week of Lent, a time when Christians journey with Jesus towards his execution by the state, aided and abetted by religious leaders on Good Friday. We recognize that Jesus is still being crucified daily in black and brown bodies. That's why we are dedicating this Lenten season to thinking together about how we can dismantle white supremacy. Each week, we will be gathering a different group of theologians, writers, movement activists, and thinkers to discuss the lectionary scriptures with that task in mind. So welcome to that conversation. Today, we are joined by several contributors to the Lenten devotional recipient. If I can have each participant say their name and where you are based, starting with Robin. Hi, I'm Reverend Robin Tanner, and I am based in Summit, New Jersey. Hi, I'm Minister Leron Moore, and I am in Canton, Michigan. Hi, my name is Awari Osiande, and I'm based here in Philadelphia. I'm Jean Jeffress, and I am based in Oakland, California. And I am Andre Johnson. I'm based in Memphis, Tennessee. We also might be joined by uh, Pastor Anthony Smith, who is based in Salisbury, North Carolina. But he may come in just a little bit later. On this podcast, this specific segment, we'll be discussing the lectionary text for Sunday, March 25th. So we're going to begin with uh, Robin Tanner. Robin wrote from Psalm the 118, the 118th Psalm, verses 1 through 2, and then 19 through 29. And the, the title of, of her submission is A Cornerstone That Endures. I'm going to read a short component, and then just would love to hear, Robin, from you, the inspiration that led you as well as anything else you would have us to know. Three times the psalmist tells us that love endures forever. Having listened to many sermons, I know that this means that either the message is really important or the audience wasn't listening. I wonder if it is not a blend of both. Love is so cheap in these days with commercial holidays and dollar signs. 
It is a word to roll your eyes at, but the kind of love that commands you to put your child in a boat to flee certain death, that endures. The kind of love that gives courage to come into the world for the first time, fully you in the midst of transition, that is a love that endures. The kind of love that defies the dictator's trigger-happy fingers by staying solidly without a blink in the resistance of nonviolence. That love endures. The kind of love that works two jobs and picks up extra hours to feed the babies endures. The kind of love that holds the hand of your beloved who is dying endures. It is this love which the psalmist must shout three times. It endures forever. So know it in your bones and believe it when all else is lost. Love endures forever. Know it against the false story of empire. There is a cornerstone that holds, and it is within you. So speak to us, Robin, about those emphasis on the repetition and, and where this took you and how you took us on this journey with you. Thank you, Ahisha. Um, so I was right, I mean, full disclosure, I was writing this passage uh, close to deadline late one night and uh, coming back from uh, some organizing work. It was like 1130 at night and one of my children started to stir. So I went into their room, they're twins and they're about three years old now and uh, put them back to bed and then got back to the computer and looking at the psalm again and it struck me that as I thought about not only the work I'm doing, but the spiritual ancestors that I feel a certain accountability to, that the greatest threat in me fulfilling that accountability was a lack of um, living out love and a lack of commitment to it and a lack of faith within it, within myself. And that I saw that in a lot of um, movement work and liberation is uh, uh, that there's a point at which we kind of falter in our belief of that love. And I'm talking about the, you know, the big, massive, liberating love, right? The love of God, the love that exceeds even our human comprehension. Um, and that when we begin to question that within ourselves, love for self, right? Um, how quickly it becomes an inability then to live that love out mm -hmm. toward others. And so it just struck me that this is when the psalmist speaks of the cornerstone, um, and they say it three times, you know, it's like a wake-up call because it's almost like liberation itself. I find it's not an enlightenment moment where you're like, oh, I understand liberation. Let's all get free. Right. <laughs> um, part of the really um, insidious nature of white supremacy is that you have to keep relearning liberation, keep making it manifest, keep your commitment to it, keep fulfilling it because it is so easy um, to be chained once more and therefore to chain others and to chain generations, frankly. I mean, I think about this with raising my kids. Um, so just how, how do you feed that love within um, in a really deep spiritual and a disciplined way? And I appreciate that. I love the, especially in this time, um, you know, the day after, all of our children took to the streets uh, to, to declare 
a liberation aspect of we should be able to be safe in schools um, and addressing gun violence, but to look at our children as these inspirations uh, and what this, like this liberation work has direct impact on the generation after the generation after the generation. And I thank you for speaking to that changing nature of white supremacy. I think the generation before us who fought and most recent generations like we, we, in a couple of the podcasts, we talked about how we were, we were asleep at some point. Like some people thought that they had made it and kind of that, that post-racial concept and all of these That's things. That's right. Right? Yeah. So because, yeah. because white supremacy itself, um, like viruses, like it, 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 adapted. <laughs> it adapted. That's right. That's right. And so what do you do when white supremacy remakes itself? You've you got to remake even your commitment to that faith of that love that endures and faith to the work and then faith to be able to continue to give that love back out. So thank you. That's so, so well put and cornerstone, a cornerstone that we can continue to depend on. Thank you so much, Robin. Thanks. So next we have Laron Moore who, well, let me say this quick. So I, I know Robin, um, Robin was formerly um, the head of uh, the Charlotte Co- uh, with, with say, give me is the Charlotte Clergy Coalition for Justice. Am I saying that right, Robin? Yeah, you got it. You got it. Okay, not all the C's. I always leave a C out. Um, so that's where I, I know her from and met her, and we uh, worked together quite a bit during Charlotte Uprising and did some mobilization together. And appreciate your heartbeat and your voice in that space. Uh, Laron and I met at Princeton uh, for the Black Theological Leadership Institute. We were year 2016, right, LeBron? Yes, yes, yes. The, the notorious. Um, and so just had a quite a big impact on all of us. And the theme of um, that year was, was it biblical interpretation in a protest era? Correct. So completely tied in. So we met these very like minds and like hearts in this one space. And then we had the nerve to lead a protest through the middle of <laughs> like who does that right um and that was very interesting and lots of white people were not ready uh but we did that with even staff of Princeton and it was it was really amazing so your piece is from Philippians uh 2 5 through 11 and it is titled citizenship on earth as it is in heaven and I love um, how you worked through the Church of Philippi and, and uh, got into what Paul was saying, but also what Paul was speaking. And I think it's important when you, when you do this work to, to get behind the text sometimes. So the portion I'm going to read is to, um, how you close. So it says, Jesus demonstrates that heavenly citizenship begin with a concerned and active earthly citizenship. Paul states that we are a part of a bigger kingdom, and he is correct. All Christians should strive for a godly kingdom mindset. However, to become part of the heavenly community, we must be concerned with our earthly community. I challenge you to be actively concerned with the least, lost, and left out, just as Jesus was and still is. I challenge you to both pray and work for equality and justice in government and in the workplace. I challenge you to submit yourself to being a servant of others with humility and faithfulness as your driving force. Only then can you consider yourself a part of the kingdom of God. The church as one body should possess the same concerns as Jesus. The message should be the same. Just as Jesus demonstrated when he walked the earth, 
We are to serve in humility, love one another, and take care of everyone's needs. When this takes place on earth, then we can truly say we are citizens of heaven in Christ. Beautifully put. Speak more to us on this, Laurent. Well, uh, first of all, thank you. Um, when I wrote this, I came from a place of dealing with uh, evangelical clergy who were very eager to to preach Jesus, but not police brutality or anything that was actually going on. Um, one example, you know, um, if I was if I were in a ditch, then someone would come along and witness to me and talk to me about Jesus. And if I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, they would say, "Praise the Lord! You're on your way to heaven," and leave me in that ditch. Um, and and that was that was a concern of mine, especially in the news with with some of the things that Paula White has been saying and that she's oh. been doing. And my concern was, how can you? Uh, speak so highly of heaven, as one of my great friends, uh, Reverend Marcel Smith, would say, how can you speak so highly of heaven, but then not try to meet what God wants you to do on earth? Um, and so that's what I spoke to. I appreciate that, uh, Laron. I have, I follow Paula White from uh, the beginning of, of her ministry and had such high hopes and it's been an interesting, interesting path and journey. And I don't, but I don't think that, that she's unique, right? So I think that there is that messaging. I think the ditch analogy that you gave us is perfect. At, at what point, the fact that you even got down in the ditch <laughs> with the right. person. So there's this ministry of presence happening, but then you, you witness and there's a, there's a, there's a evangelism. Um, but to leave them in the ditch, like Jesus never left anybody the same. An encounter exactly. with Jesus is was changing, was uh, you know reformative. It was revolutionary. So how how do you do that? How do you do that? How how has this been received in your local context or where you are? Well, I I believe that it's it's been received well. I have received some pushback about because um, I've I've used the, the ditch illustration before and. You know, people believe, well, as long as you accept Christ in that dish, then you're fine. But I, I say the answer to that is no. Um, Jesus never left people the same way they found him. Jesus stopped uh, in a crowd of people and called forth a blind beggar. Um, he stopped a rich man to help a woman with an issue of blood. Um, okay. So there's... And there's he came down from heaven to do that. Yes. Right? <laughs> so... so I, so I think there are plenty of examples of, of what, of what his, his mission uh, was. Thank you. That makes, that makes perfect sense so much. Anything else further you want to add? Awesome. Thank you, Laron. Uh, so now we have the marvelous Jean. Uh, am I saying that correctly? Jeffress, yeah. thank you. Your piece took me to a place I just can't even describe, um, and I'm I'm just so so grateful. Um, you came from Matthew 15 verses 1 through 39, and it's entitled "Crimes of Being." I'm gonna attempt to truncate what I, I basically want to read the whole thing, <laughs> but I'm gonna attempt to not do that. Um, and read portions. So I'm going to start for those who are listening and tuning in with us. I'm going to start with like the first kind of sentence or so, and then um, go into just your middle portion. And then that last sentence that you gave us to close out. 
So that's uh, the order that I'm reading. Crimes of Fiends. He said Jesus was crucified, not because of anything that he did, but because of who he was. The only question he was asked by Pilate during his interrogation is, are you the king of the Jews? Are you, not did you? From an imperial perspective, what you did or did not do is entirely secondary to who you are. Nothing to the second paragraph. They hung Jesus because he was loved. And love is dangerous when it mirrors back to Rome the hollow and fragile greed and hatred it takes to oppress and kill hundreds of thousands of people. And when you are punished because of who you are, when crime is projected onto the canvas of your humanity by an empire and its agents of violence, when suspicion is the default setting the state has uploaded next to your name and picture, when the threat is the color of your skin, the texture of your hair, the volume of your music, the candy in your hand, when you can never be unarmed because your weapon is your DNA, then the threat of crucifixion is never far away. If you are poor or black or brown in America, if you have crossed over from somewhere other than Norway, we know where that reference came from, to be here on this stolen land with its stolen wealth and live among the vast pale hordes of us who lay claim to the loot. All that we have done to be here is reflected back to us in your irises. Rape, theft, enslavement, genocide, lying, cheating, torture, murder, kidnapping. All of it makes some of us want to claim that we had nothing to do with that part of things, so we can't be held accountable. Or make some of us want to say that that was a long time ago, that things are better now. Or make some of us try to work to liberate ourselves from the empty horror of whiteness. Or make some of us want to say that white people are now more oppressed than people of color. Or make some of us want to call the police on you because it might not be safe for you to be on our stolen space with us. Because if you are there, then we might have to feel something. And that would be unpleasant. Whiteness doesn't like unpleasantness. You close with this sentence after you already slayed me. Jesus was killed for being who he is. Yeah. Tell us all the things, Dean. Tell us what? Tell us all the things. All the things? Mm-hmm. That's a lot of things. Um, well, I mean, I think that this this piece kind of comes out of um, um, last year, Good Friday, there was a, a Good Friday service at City of Refuge, uh, United Church of Christ in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Um, if you guys know City of Refuge that with um, Bishop Yvette Flunder is the pastor. Anyway, they had a seven last words and I was invited to preach and I got the word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I didn't know what I was going to do with that because it just seemed like a terrible word to get, just like the worst word <laughs> to get. Um, and I went into this thing that was really kind of about who people are um, and how it was kind of about victim blaming in a way 
And it's like once whatever the power is decides who and what you are, it mm-hmm. doesn't it doesn't really matter what you do anymore. It's all about where you're from. Oh, you're from there. Oh, those are your people. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, until like I until like it's shown to me that you're something else, I'm going to think that you're this. And we see it in rape culture with like the way, you know, what was she wearing and all this. So in white supremacy culture, it's all about, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a PhD, you know, it doesn't, I mean, we already know this. It doesn't, so it, that's why I'm thinking it's like these crimes of being. It's like just being born. If you're just born in this country and you're not white, you know, you're already, you're already, people are like, well, you know, what did you expect? I mean, I saw a story on Facebook recently about a, uh, a black man who grew up in Oakland. This is the story. He grew up in Oakland. He went to do all his Saturday errands, all his shopping and everything that he does. And then he went to the library like he does every Saturday. And he went to the library. He's in the books, in the stacks, and the cops come and they drag him out of the library because he looks like somebody who might have shoplifted something. And it's like the ladies, these white librarians who've seen him every single Saturday, their whole thing was like shaking their head. What did you expect? Like, and mm. I'm just like, man, that's just, a good, that's just a heart crusher, even them. So that's kind of where I came up with this, like, and then, and then I, you know, part of what I've been talking about with Jesus is that, you know, what did he actually do to warrant such a hideous punishment? He didn't do anything, really. He, didn't, he just offended power. And, and, and it really is because of who he was, what, not even because of what he was saying so much of who, who was saying it. And it was this poor guy, you know, from the sticks, speaking liberation to the poor and, and kind of putting the powerful in their place. And so that's where all this comes from. You know, it's like this, it's like the, our culture is so backwards where like, um, where like, just victims are blamed. I, I can't think of any other way to put it. We see the school kids now with signs, don't shoot us, and adults saying, well, you'll get suspended. You're going to get suspended if you step out of the classroom because you're afraid you're going to get shot. Yeah. You yeah. know, so power has already decided something. So that's kind of where that comes from. It's just, so that's where that came from. Yeah, I don't know what else to say. No, that's no, that's perfectly put. And and I'm 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 very big on a power analysis. Any any lecture, any kind of anything. If I if I speak long enough, I'm gonna say the words heartbeat, and I'm gonna say the words power analysis. This is kind of who I am. So I I, I really resonate with that power now. That power decides, mm-hmm. and so pow, power decides the identity, and and more. Has, the identity is then an assessment of value. So the power has decided your value based on your identity. And then in, um, in this case, what you were saying that Jesus is love. And Robin just said, you know, this love that endures, but the love itself was the threat. And it was because, a threat. It wasn't yeah, the love. Because love, love, is actually, right. love is actually the most powerful thing. The most and powerful. Then, and then what, what, what power, I'll put it in air quotes here, right here, air quotes, <laughs> um, is 
what pa power always needs to be renewed so it's not infinite like love so love is really threatening to power and there was one other thing i was going to say part of another thing about this piece that i wrote too so if if power decides whose life has value then power has already decided about its own life too and that's mm -hmm. what i was talking about like like maybe the violence of white of whiteness isn't even about like oh i'm i'm afraid of the black people or i'm afraid of the other people it's really about i'm nothing mm. you know like i've decided like we've been fighting so hard for so long to not be black and to not be brown and to not be irish and to just not be anything but white what if we're right and we're just nothing and then these and they have these like white men going in and asserting their manhood with machine guns killing children i mean that's where we're at you know it's like it's a sickness you know it's, it's definitely a sickness and it's it's a it's an internal assessment of value to your point and so threatened you know yeah, so I don't, I don't feel like whiteness i don't feel like whiteness makes you nothing but why does whiteness require a hierarchical approach to to our relation to one another why must whiteness be superior to whatever is non-white like why is that part necessary why cannot you be valuable because you're valuable and you know if we talk about being made in the image and all these things and having this this creator you're just as created you're just as wonderfully and beautifully made like why can't that be sufficient why must Maybe somehow more more splendor <laughs> than I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that it's just like um, white people and like the whole white whiteness and like we've just done so many atrocities, and I think we just I think there are a number of us who live in fear that it'll be done to us. It will be right, right, and and and. And so white men stockpile guns and they feel and they just, I don't know. I think there's just so much insecurity and it's just, it's privilege too. Privilege makes people really fragile. It's like, yeah. you've seen those memes. I'm sure like when equality feels like, feels like oppression. It's like, yeah. I think that's what, I think that's what it is. I don't know. It's a sad state of affairs. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I'll close out with the first, the, and it, it could have come from various sources, but the first person I heard to talk about um, the armed and unarmed was uh, Tracy Blackman. And she did say, she was like, it is impossible for black folks to, mm -hmm. to ever be unarmed because yeah. our blackness is the threat. So we yeah. walk around armed at all times based on yep. the perception. And so I appreciated, I appreciated that because that's, that's definitely how I feel, and I didn't always feel that way. I didn't always feel that way. Um, but I resonate with being Sandra Brown. I mean, Sandra Bland. Excuse me. I resonate with with feeling like I am. I am constantly a threat, and so if I'm perceived that way, then the reaction is is, is not going to match. <laughs> it's not going to match. Right. But you the truth, the real, yeah, the real threat though is the is is the other direction. You know, yeah, exactly. you're not a threat at all. The real threat is like is is the white supremacy and the violence like that. Mm -hmm. But that stands in its fragileness. And as soon as you yeah. poke it, it like shatters to bits and everybody's crying their white tears. And it's, you know, and they're like, oh, now I'm oppressed because I don't get to be, 
you know, I don't get to say overtly sexist and racist things anymore. And, you know, so you're, not, but you, we know how that plays. So like that yeah. the manipulation has been hundreds of years in the making. Yeah. To the point, I think of Robin starting off saying that the changing nature, this is, this is the changing nature. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. For the power of your words. So now we have Iwari Osayende, who um, did uh, use Mark 11 verses 1 through 11. And the title is uh, Usurping God, Whiteness, and the Challenge of the Cross. Once again, I just want to read the whole entire, like from the first word to the last word. But I'm going to be good. Um, and I'm going to start with the second paragraph. I'm basically going to do the middle and then the way that he closed. So it says, white supremacy necessitates a white deity. According to its false logic, God can only be white. Therefore, Christ, as God's only begotten son, must also be white. The dark-hued Jesus of history disrupts white supremacy's central premise that white people are better, are the best, and as such are the only people fit to rule. A whiteified Christ has wrought havoc in the minds and spirits of people of color and white people worldwide for centuries. Indeed, it has upended the very nature of the gospel message. But what can possibly be the meaning of a white Christ crucified? By distorting the image of Christ, white Christians have usurped the local, the social location of Jesus and deemed themselves the world's savior and have placed themselves above reproach. More than that, they have also claimed the space of perennial sufferer, giving the idea of the quote-unquote white man's burden, a morality it cannot in truth hold. The historic account of the brown-skinned Hebrew rebel, known as Jesus, nailed to a Roman cross, as retold generations later in the Gospels, is an indictment of empire. Christians worshiping a white Jesus is a justification of empire. That is a contradiction that sits at the heart of the Christian church. Left unchallenged and unreconciled, it has enabled the execution of untold millions of people since Paul proclaimed Christ crucified. He closes with, when Jesus told the crowd gathered on a hillside in Galilee to take up their cross and follow him, they didn't think of wearing a gold pendant around their neck. They remembered their family members who in the thousands were crucified by the Romans when Jesus was still a child. Today, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he is inviting us into a life of confrontation with empire and its enablers and collaborators. To follow Jesus in our day in this way is to heal our sight so that when we see the dark hued of humanity marching in the streets all over the world, we will say, Hosanna to the highest. Blessed are they who come in the name of the Lord. And then I had church when I was reading this. <laughs> I was just blown away. Like I actually got up from my desk and did like a Baptist church hop all around and was like, yes, Hosanna to the highest. Because just imagine being in my skin and being like, what a different reception that would be. Yes. Other than to be like we just talked about being seen as the threat. Where, where do I go where somebody says Hosanna to the high yes. 
yeah. one day um, in the name of the Lord. Just just go and finish preaching. <laughs> take, it, take, it, take it on home, sir. Um, can you hear me? I can. You're very okay, good. Okay, good. Um, first of all, I want to say uh, thank you to you and to the sister who uh, put this collection together. Um, I was just floored at uh, the prospect that such a text would be shared, that Christians would have a chance to be uh, challenged at what I believe is the central mm-hmm. question of the Christian church since, uh, yeah, since colonialism. Um, that being the making of God over into the image of whiteness and the consequences um, that um, the entire world, the entire planet, uh, people, animals, and all life have suffered as a consequence. Um, As I share in the essay, uh, it is my belief and many others for that matter um, that that when we speak about white supremacy and the role of the Christian church, we are talking about a relationship that in fact uh, causes those of us who believe in Jesus as the son of God um, to be faced with a conundrum. That central conundrum being that if in fact God is white, that if in fact God can only be white, then what does that mean about whiteness? And then what does that mean as a consequence about the suffering of black and brown people throughout history and today? Certainly we can point chapter and verse to the periods in our history in which, and even to this present moment, where as a result of this lie, uh, black and brown people uh, essentially worshiped at the altar of white supremacy, believing that whiteness represents for them their salvation. Thus, Mm -hmm. any conversation, any real effort to organize black people to resist whiteness is for them an absolute affront because their very understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ requires them to uphold white supremacy. I can't think of a more devious, evil Mm. contraption that any system could devise to ensure that the oppression that they have put in place will survive. Um, So yes, for me, this is a crucial text. This is a crucial collection. And, it, and, and, if, and, and the hope is that it will usher forward a new kind of conversation. Um, as I say in the essay, and I'll close out my comments here, um, you know, uh, James Baldwin, you know, the great literary uh, figure, um, in his book, The Evidence of Things Not Seen, he talks about, he says, um, uh, he, said, he says that white people came to the cross by way of the Bible. Whereas black people came to the Bible by way of the cross. Um, I, I read that and I say that today, uh, white people must come to the cross by the way of Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, Eric Garner, Renee Davis, Philando Castile and Corinne Gaines, and many others, black and brown people executed without trial by the state. That is to say that, uh, you know, as you said at the introduction and, and as was said at the introduction, Black and brown people are still being crucified to this day. And until we gain the fundamental lesson of the gospel, that's going to continue. And that those of us who profess Christ, those of us who who, who proclaim 
uh, uh, Christ resurrected, then we have a different story to tell and we have a different mission than, than what has uh, been put forward by Christendom. By Christendom. And um, yeah, it's my hope that we get about the work. Agreed. And, and what you're saying is hard for, for folks to take, like ridiculously hard to take. Uh, I, I wasn't born and raised um, a Christian, but I always had a construct of, of Jesus as white. And I find it, the deviousness is compounded if you look at not only that the, like, Jesus being white met the need of whiteness, but just look at the, the other aspect that there was then an expectation that mm-hmm. everybody else who was non-white should just have to relate to this white Jesus that was yes. remade into whiteness. And so the expectation is you should accept this white Jesus because this is still the standard and the default and this is the norm. This is normative. But mm-hmm. what happens when you say, but geographically, <laughs> where, where was Jesus? And if, That's you, right. if you start to get into just facts and things and people start making Egypt another part of the world, and it's just very, it's very ridiculous. Um, and I'm at um, MCUT and uh, the president of our school before class, I held, you know, he hung up all of these pictures all around the classroom mm-hmm. of a dark hued as um was stated earlier, a dark hued Jesus all over and just waited for the class to walk in and process this. But here's, here's, here's the, here's the magnitude of this. I teach at a school that is like 80, 90% black. So the deviousness is that black Christians have had to accept this white Jesus as well. And then what does that say about our need for Mm. Jesus to be white? Why is that? What happens when that becomes the need as well? Um, And if you walk through all of our offices, anybody comes to Memphis, I'm going to give you a tour and we can just have like an inside conversation because everybody has a different representation. Jesus in everybody's office represents, Mm -hmm. you know, who's sitting at the desk. I got you. Yes. So you, if the person, the desk is empty, but Jesus is on the wall, you yeah. absolutely know the ethnicity of the gotcha. person. Yeah. Yep. So, but how, I mean, like, it makes me further just not surprised. We talk about this fake news and we talk about not mm. being able to discern facts and things anymore. But as you said, look at this lie that we have accepted and then projected and preached and everything else through this whole thing. And then what's our need for you, for there to be the truth of the Jesus? It's just, it's just so profound and hard and needs to be said over and over and over and over again. And if you can't combat a dark hued, I mean, at least a brown Jesus, yeah. Yeah. there is no way you can identify mm-hmm. with the suffering of a, of a brown person on the ground executed by the state because you already can't identify with a brown Jesus executed by the state but raised up for all to see so yeah thank you just it's a hard truth and it's a hard truth I think for all of us you think about just different levels of acculturation or the process Mm -hmm. of acculturation and whoo it's some cognitive dissonance. It's some double consciousness. It's just like yeah, it's yes, so yeah. many things. It's so it's so 
it's so complicated. It's just not simple. It's, we can't even pretend that it's simple. I can stay here all day, but I'm a I'm gonna go on to my other two black men waiting in the wings. Very well, very well. <laughs> thank you, thank you so thank much, you, Thank you and very I, much. I hope that you that you read this everywhere you go, and I'm gonna hang it on my wall. And <laughs> other people who are listening to this really take this in. Take the take this tension in. Like yeah. don't reject the tension. Like really take it in and process it and sit with this. Um, and it would be good. It would be good for us all. It really ties into. Uh, Anthony, who we're going to close with, uh, when you talk about worshiping at the altar of whiteness, I think that's actually a quote from his his uh, uh, contribution as well. But we're going to go with uh, Andre Johnson right now. I met, oh, and Iwari, I'm sorry. Iwari, I also met at uh, Princeton, same same year as Laron at the uh, right. Black Theological Leadership Institute. And it has been both life-changing and affirming for so many of us. And the connections that have been made are just invaluable so i just like to highlight that again we need those spaces like so much um yeah so andre though i have met since moving to memphis i've been here a whole entire 10 months and before we started recording i completely told on him and how he (laughs) just embarrassed me thoroughly earlier today and just pulled me all into some things but i appreciate i appreciate andre's um Ability to do so. <laughs> and I, you know, I would much rather, let me put it like this. We're talking about um, the, the skin that we're in. Andre, I would much rather you acknowledge me and pull me into a thing than pretend that my femaleness is not present, which is something mm. I'm all too used to. So as much as I'm joking and kidding with you, I'm, I'm super grateful as a, a black woman in ministry that there's a black man who will stand on a stage and say, no, sis, you come up. <laughs> so, so thank you. So truly. Well, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Um, Andre came from Mark 14, one through 15, uh, 47. And it's uh, entitled a reflection on the passion. I am starting, I'm just doing one little excerpt in the middle and I'm going to end with, he ended very um, similarly to Laron with the challenges. There's some challenges up in here, and I'm <laughs> grateful. But, like, you challenged us. Laron, you challenged us, uh, directly challenged us with these words. And you said, concerned about his approval rating and wanting to satisfy the crowd, the governor handed him over for execution, despite having reservations about Jesus' guilt. Not too long after that final appeal was denied, this man who just wanted to share the kingdom of God with the people of God, This man who could not breathe, this unarmed man, gave his last cry and breathed his last breath. He closes with, I appreciate how John tells this story. The narrative should lead us to serious reflection. As we read the story, who do we resonate with? Are we Jesus's friends who promise loyalty but call 911 or turn state's witness when their own safety was at risk? Are we the church leaders who under the guise of working for the Lord worked against God's life in the world? Are we the members of the crowd who are easily persuaded by the false prophets in our lives? Are we the governor who knew that something was wrong, but wanting to be popular with the crowd went against what he knew to be the truth? Are we the church council members 
seeking to enhance our status by denigrating someone else? Or are we the police officer who finally gets it, but only after it's too late? Are we the women friends of Jesus who, though marginalized, though not always named, still bear witness to the execution of yet another innocent human? In these times, I submit that a rereading of the passion narrative is a good place to begin to make sense of the times in which we live now and our own faith journey. Well, you sure made us look at ourselves. <laughs> I'm very grateful. Well, <clears throat> well, first of all, uh, let me just say thank you for inviting me and allowing me to be a part of this a wonderful group of these smart, um, brilliant theologians and preachers and teachers. And, um, and somehow I made the cut. So I am just honored and privileged to be a part. And, um, and it was from Mark instead of John. I was um, um, writing kind of both, and I left John in there. And I, I noticed that after it went to publication. So uh, I apologize for that. However, um, I have always been pulled, uh, I've always been pulled toward the, the passion narratives because the passion narratives speak so much about what it means to be poor in the criminal justice system. Mm, say that. Uh, the, the, the Jesus' capture, his trial, the execution is a almost a mirror to what it means to be poor in the criminal justice system. And all of those people who had, um, um, who had a chance to do the right thing, who could have just stepped back and said, you know, uh, I, I'm going to get convicted today and I'm not going to do what I set out to do this morning. Uh, they all did not do what they should have done in order for this innocent person uh, not to be executed. I don't say crucifixion. I, I executed by mm -hmm. the state. Yep. So uh, um, when I read, and I, and I do this just about every year around this time, I reread the passion narratives over and over, and I ask myself um, in, in a deep reflection, who am I this year? Who am I in this reading? What am I doing? You know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, now uh, we're doing this podcast and I'm thinking about the governor and I'm thinking about um, the gun violence that's going on. And I'm thinking about the NRA and I'm asking I'm asking governors, I'm asking political uh, leaders, uh, are you washing your hands because you're afraid oh, of the yeah. NRA and, oh. and you don't want to lose your popularity or lose your position? Mm -hmm. I mean, these are questions that speak to today, not just, you know, in Jesus' time, it speaks today. Religious authority, um, uh, bringing trumped up charges and trying to mask their concern about justice um, in a framework of this is what God will want us to do and we are carrying out the work of God. Um, this is going on today and this is why the brilliant pieces uh, and and that that are in the um, devotional as well as we'll share it today. This is why we have a Jesus that is 
uh, is um, lifted up as being white and being right. And so if Jesus is right and white, then whatever I do in his name makes me white and right. So I, I, this is so today and and a understanding of that whole passion narrative the, the, from the Garden of Gethsemane on to the crucifixion and beyond um, helps us to begin to understand um, uh, what it means to be a faithful witness, but also what it means to be a uh, person that is not a faithful witness. And we ought to learn from that and try to do better. Do better. So do better. And, and the fact that I love, I love that you challenged us in, in, the, in the submission, but this is a reflection of you challenge yourself, that you do the yeah. self-reflection yourself based on what you described. And you're so right, because if, if there had been power, that power viewed as power, this never would have went down. Mm, right? mm-hmm. Like, you know, the right person would have made the right phone call to the right person and that would happen. You would go out of the, the side door rather than the front door. <laughs> like you wouldn't, you wouldn't right. have handcuffs. No, a note, I, I'm originally from Charlotte, North Carolina mm-hmm. and like in Ballantyne or in Myers Park, they're not issuing no knock warrants in Myers Park. Wow. Mm-hmm. No knock warrants are only happening in the quote unquote in the hood. In our, right. in our places of residence where we mm-hmm. live, where we love. Like, no knock warrants, what? I have a mom there that lost her son this way. And I mean, and they're like laid out with, you know, machine guns in her yard to serve mm-hmm. a warrant. And right. because because of not having power, because right. of being poor, because of like what we consider marginalization or disenfranchisement and all these things. And you're right. And to put it in that context is so helpful. And to to really look at all the people mm-hmm. that made it possible for Jesus to be uh, executed in this manner. It took right. a whole I, lot of people. <laughs> I mean, like, it, it, it took a whole lot of folks to make that. A whole lot of people. And, and you, you touched on it when you were talking about the police force. If you start at the beginning in the garden, the police force was so heavy Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, to come to capture Jesus, that Jesus even had to say, well, "Did you have to come with me with all these clubs?" I mean, I was, I was in the temple every day. You could have easily, uh, oh, um, um, you, you know, um, pick me up there. So the presence, the over policing mm-hmm. of another brown body, black body, is uh, not yesteryear it's today and oh, we see oh. it back then in jesus's day as well too that's why i love the passion i was glad that i had an opportunity to kind of reflect on the passion narrative uh, something that i like i said i read and i teach and i try to preach um, um every year thank you this is it was it was well done and you preached to us and we received it and we'll <laughs> pass out for an offering as soon as we uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank, you. thank you Andre and, and Andre is a huge part of the Memphis community and is very vocal and active and organizing mm-hmm. so he's not just espousing these things but he's working in these areas and that's something that I said for a whole different podcast that I did and I was like these are not these folks in recipients are not just wordy folks. So yes, y'all are brilliant. Y'all are amazing wordsmiths, 
but are actually living out this work. If you look at these bios, if you look at your heartbeat, if you look at what you do on Tuesday, you know what I mean? Like y'all are in the work and I I thoroughly appreciate that. So another one in the work, I met him in the work. (laughs) This is how um, Anthony Smith and I met at uh, the Highlander Center in 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 uh, Tennessee and we came together and we were kind of mourning <laughs> it was very special because uh we really came together uh shortly after the the last election and it was supposed to be kind of an interfaith gathering of you know how do we put forth an agenda of where we're going to go next but we kind of just came together and had to hold each other and put together an agenda because we were like what who just left the gate open um and so really, really, really been close since then. And I appreciate this brother so, so much. And he's from my home state of, of North Carolina in Salisbury. Um, Anthony came from Mark uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And when I tell you it ties, Anthony, is, he, he was supposed to be first, but he was doing the work. So he just joined us. <laughs> and... Uh, and but he is about to knit all of this together, everything that we have all said. The title alone slays like Beyonce. And the title says the temple of whiteness. I just want y'all to just 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 lock in and, and, and get with this. So I'm gonna read the middle, like the second, kind of second, third paragraph, and then kind of the way he closes. But but he he paints a picture and he's taking us on a journey. So let's let's go together. Says Jesus rides his bike, not to pay homage to the false god, but to expose its treachery and injustice. Also to expose it for the false treacherous god it is. For many are under its spell. Many think it is the god of Israel, the god of love. In reality, this is not the god of Exodus, as many suppose. This is an old Somebody okay. Sorry. This is an evil parody that masquerades as the God of Israel. The spell is powerful. It cannot be broken with logic and rational discourse. The white God's presence is pervasive. It has created a cultural architecture that provides scaffolding for an entire universe of symbols that at every turn lift up whiteness as normative an heir to the throne of every human's heart. This kind of spell can only be broken by cast by being cast out of the land. So he closes this way. Hosanna, or liberate now, Lord, they chant. The chant gets louder as he begins to pass the crowd. He feels the fear, anxiety, and spark of hope of the people as he passes by on his bike. As he approaches the temple of whiteness, he brings his own kingdom with him. He understands that the temple of whiteness is pretend, a deadly fairy tale, a malignant political illusion that has its psycho-spiritual tentacles in the collective imagination of the many peoples throughout the known world. The temple of whiteness is of the upside-down world, a world never meant for humans. But it is a false world that has burglarized and robbed God's world of life, dignity, freedom, justice, and love. The people grow more anxious as they wait to see the clash between these two kingdoms. 
the people murmur among themselves, does Jesus really think he's going to defeat the God of whiteness with the street power of common everyday people and a bicycle? Will the love in their hearts for each other, emptying themselves of their privilege, decolonizing their hearts, bearing each other's burdens, sharing their resources, creating alternative communities of love, putting their bodies in the way of the motorcade, momentarily stop it. That be enough? (laughs) I just have to take a breath after that. Like, I feel like I just read a nonfiction that is eerily, eerily accurate. How, how did you, did you take us here, Anthony? And what's going to happen? Like my friend uh, Melvin Bray uh, says in his book, "Better, we got to tell better stories." Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, as my, as several people have said tonight, you know, we think about the different ways in which uh, white supremacy, whiteness, crucifies uh, people, and so straight away I began to think about all the different images in our culture of crucified people um, in different communities around this world and particularly the United States how we carve out spaces of joy and beauty and liberation mm-hmm. even with the smallest even with small acts and so I, I've always been fascinated whenever I see scenes of movies in South Central LA and Compton Always, I'm always fascinated with when kids get creative when they create their bikes. There's an interesting bike culture in Compton, right? Mm. And, um, and so I just imagine Jesus riding like this bike that he made with his hands mm. uh, <laughs> from Compton. You know, I don't know if you've seen his bike. Listen, I am, I am completely here <laughs> for Compton Jesus, okay? Right. And it's just like, you know, where I grew up, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. You know, when I grew up as a kid, you know, some, you know, I'm, I'm dating myself here. But we would work on our bikes, right? We would make our own bikes. And so I can just see Jesus being one of these folks. I mean, just, I know he was awesome. He was a prophet, king, and revolutionary, all that. But I always imagine him just being, living in ordinary uh, village existence, being with his people. You know, being at weddings, being at parties. Mm-hmm. And so in my fictional account, I can see Jesus doing one of them bikes, right? The, the kind of bikes that are built in the margins. People using their assets and gifts that they have, he's building this bike in the margins. And so here he is, in a sort of parody, right? With, with, you know, robbing, not robbing, but, you know, Picasso said, great artist still, you know, stealing from, stealing from David's uh, story and writing of a donkey into a place of power, right? Riding a vehicle, riding a, a, a transport, a transport uh, that does not represent what the temple has become. And so here he is amongst his people. There's echoes and themes of liberation, hearkening back to the ancient story of Exodus. Here's Jesus riding a bike. And the thing that hits me is because this scene is anticlimactic at the end because he doesn't do anything. Right. 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 
but the thing that grabbed me is, and what a lot of us, like my brother said, uh, I can't remember my brother's name, the brother before, the last brother, when he said, when people of color, yes, when he said that, you know, black Christians are in a conundrum, right, in this culture. Um, Here is Jesus riding his bike to a architecture, to a temple, whose founding story is liberation. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. Not just the, the, temple, the whole founding. Yes. Yes. I mean, the temple represents the aspirations and dreams of of God's people, the Israelites, too, were delivered from slavery from Exodus. Young story. <laughs> and here it is this temple that represents a, a deeper story. And it's like now, as Jesus goes on in one gospel account, he begins to deconstruct what the temple has become. It has become a den of thieves, he says, right? And and he talks about uh, the zeal of the house has consumed him. That's another gospel uh, rendition of that. Echoing the Maccabean revolt, when the Maccabees went in and kicked butt, kicked the Romans, you know, kicked the, uh, the Gentiles out, the, the oppressor out, and took hold of the temple. So Jesus echoes that sentiment. So he's, he's coming in with themes of liberation. He's riding his bike, he's riding from places of the margins. And he lands, he lands into the temple, a place whose founding story was Exodus, was liberation. But, it's, but this temple whose founding story was liberation has now become a temple whose, now, whose story now is that of empire. Mm. Is, that not like, is that not like Christianity now? Is that not Christianity now? Christianity is no longer in this culture with, with the exception of a few spaces that people have carved out in the Western world for liberation and pedagogy of the oppressed and so forth. The, uh, Christianity is like the temple that Jesus enters into that has now become co-opted by the Roman Empire. So Christianity has become co-opted, deformed by white supremacy. And so what does Jesus do? He goes in and disrupts the space. Mm. He disrupts the co-option. And so that's kind of what my thoughts were, my beginning thoughts were. Your, your thoughts are quite some thoughts. I am taken aback again just by the very, it's a, again, very deep, very complex, very pervasive, but that Christianity has moved from liberation to empire. Um, but that moving is didn't happen today, right? So I mean, we think about right. and we think about a lot of a lot of different ways that Christianity has showed up um, on this side of of the Jordan and the empire, kind of like the nothing in the never end of stories, has been cut. Right this whole time and this whole time and, and you think I didn't get that Stranger Things reference. I saw that upside down world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's the yeah, you gotta thing. add that in there. Um, what what did they call that the, the the figure that um yeah that that was there. But that, that same it's 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 taking over. It's coming in, but it does it slowly. It does it slowly and um, right. you're talking about aging yourself, but I'll go back to the Ghostbusters and the the, the river underneath, the river of blood, I think. Right. 
about and how it was the evil and it was making everybody angry and it but it was running under and it had to get under everything before it could right. impact everybody. And so that is what has been happening the whole time. But I think to this point we have we have arrived at empire. And I think everyone in their text at some point says either imperialism empire the power it's 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 all connected and this is amazing it's amazing and, yeah. and sad right and yeah. just to just to amplify another how big and how pervasive and how powerful the temple of whiteness is in christianity even woke folk yep even conscious people the way they narrate christianity our culture it's still a colonized version of it. Yes. I read an article that day, and I understand it. Uh, I definitely understand, especially black folks, especially people like myself, returning back and having a conversation with you know, indigenous African traditional religion and so forth. Mm -hmm. But even the way we even narrate escaping that, like we say that this is Christianity and we have to leave it. Mm. Right. And so for me, uh, a truly decolonized position is one in which you understand that one, Jesus was of the oppressed. Jesus was not a colonizer. Right. right. And so, and so it just shows you the power of the temple of whiteness, even, even from those who have a position of critique, rightfully so in many ways of Christianity, but can even see past the temple of whiteness, to see the liberationist possibility in Jesus. It just shows the work that we have to do within ourselves of decolonization. When we can't even see the liberationist impulse, not just in Christianity, but other faiths as well. And when you said, when you said that Jesus was not the colonizer, Jesus was the oppressed. So even when we say in the name of Jesus, we are saying in the name of the oppressed, in the name of the crucified one, in the name of the executed one, in the name of the brown right. one, in the name. Like that is what we're saying. Um, exactly. But that is not what the capital C church is saying. And that is not what no. it is. It is empire. Um, and so the fact that we have now or their powers have now taken the in the name in the name of the oppressed we are going to oppress that that is that is what we have become but i don't think that's what we have to become because if nothing else we got at least 46 witnesses right up in here <laughs> that declare yes. and decree that we will not we will neither bow eat at the king's table or worship at the altar of the temple of whiteness anymore, that the empire cannot have us. Um, and so that right. be set apart, but not to be separate, but set apart in our thinking and in our minds and in our hearts. And whew. We can't, we can't, we can no longer afford to tell plantation versions of Jesus in this culture. We can no longer afford it. Laurent is, is, is shouting. He just on mute. So you can't you can't hear it, but it's happening. <laughs> he shouted in the chat. He is shouting on you. <laughs> like there's lots of shouting right. that I can see y'all. We yeah, we we can no uh, neoliberalism uh, is at its 
it's unsustainable. The, the culture, political economy in which we in is unsustainable. We cannot afford as Christians, conscious Christians in this culture, to tell the plantation version of, of the Jesus stories any longer. We cannot. No. And we got to tell the story from a place of, uh, and I always talk about incarnation in our community when we do our faith we're organizing here. Jesus, when we're Christian, when we confess and we say we believe the incarnation, God became uh, incarnate, became human. Whiteness tells us, it universalizes it, right? Jesus became a bland human being, or as we say, a white human being. Mm. Uh, but in reality, Jesus becomes an oppressed Palestinian Jew. Okay. So the God saves the world by becoming an oppressed human being and a colonized people. This is the founding story of the Christian faith. Mm. He so didn't, we, we, he didn't become flesh, became oppressed flesh, flesh. and a colonized. Yes. I'm, I'm, I, I'm just enlaved. I'm, I just, I need like a, oh gracious, yes. Yeah. But we got to tell, so like for me as a, you know, I'm a community organizer. So, you know, I tell the story of Jesus this way in our community. You know, I'm not speaking to academics, but, you know, that, those conversations have to happen in an academic level. But we have, we have to say this in a way, in a, in a radical popular pedagogy at the community level when we're organizing our communities and we interject, we're bringing the gifts of the Christian faith into that into movements of justice, local movements of justice in our community. We have to tell people our story. This is what we have to tell you. Even if you don't believe in God, if you believe in God, if you do believe in God, understand that God became one of y'all, one of us. Right? Yeah. God became oppressed. So if God was here, he'd been, his body would have been laid out in the street in Ferguson for hours. For hours. And if God, yeah. With and God was actually laying on the street. Exactly. He was in the, yeah, God's body was located in the body of Mike Brown. God was laying on the streets of Ferguson, laid out for hours for, to decompose on the street of his own community. That's where God was. That's where God is. But we don't read it that way because of whiteness. Whiteness has directed our gaze. Whiteness has directed our language. Whiteness has directed how we organize our churches, how we do our worship, how we do Eucharist, how we baptize people. All that, we got to tell the story. We can no longer afford to talk about plantation Jesus anymore. And that's what Jesus is up to at the temple. He said, he's reclaiming the story. He's reclaiming that space. He said, this is my father's house, not your house. So I'll be telling white folks, this is my Jesus, not yours. <laughs> I felt every piece. I felt every piece of that, and this whole this whole conversation has just this whole con- again being in my being in my in my in my black skin. I just to just imagine a world where there are people that think like this and interpret scripture this way and see Jesus this way, and not just see Jesus this way, but to see me this way, to see you this way. <clears throat> Just even from Iwari talking about to see us and to not see the threat, but to Hosanna of the highest and blessed are those who come in the name because the uh, oppressed are 
are are in the, coming in the name of that oppressed, and I am awash with emotion right now. And I needed to hear this. I need this kind of um, inpouring just to make it to tomorrow. This is the part of the podcast where we call you, our listeners, to action. Our call to action will remain the same for the full season of Lent. We're asking you to learn about the present-day state-sanctioned killing of black and brown people by law enforcement, corrections officers, and vigilantes. And we're further asking you to take action to end it. We'll link to a full set of educational resources and action ideas in the transcript. Thank you for joining us this week. As always, the, the transcript of this episode is going to be available on the Surge website, S-U-R-J, and it will include references, credits, and copyright information, as well as a bunch of other resources to support your action. Next week, We'll be joined by a whole nother set of amazing on-the-ground theologians, if I can pick myself up and make it to then. I'm just overwhelmed with beauty in this moment. But be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss even one episode. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And this podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas or just want to have church with us. Mm -hmm. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is called No Enemies a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Our sound editor this week is Paul Stewart. Thank you, Paul. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. And I am Vahisha Hassan. <laughs>